Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. Uh, my intrepid normal co-host, Doug, is still off doing Doug stuff. Uh, so we have a uh, fill-in co-host, uh, which is repeat Urban Cowboys guest in his own right, Razib Khan. So, uh, Razib, welcome back. Howdy. And our guest today is uh, Twitter personality, tech uh, raconteur, uh, default friend. Uh, do you want to say your real name or is that that's a secret? Nah, we'll keep it off air. Although Justin Murphy doxes me all the time. <laughs> okay, yes. Uh, Does he yeah. do that purposely? No, but it's like his last like three or four guests, I've sort of been like, hey, check out this person's Twitter, check out this person's project. And then like in the first like minute of the podcast, he's like, oh yeah, you know, my name here <laughs> showed me your stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, he lives in what, like Albuquerque? Oh, he's in, he's in uh, Bozeman now, isn't he? Yeah, he's oh. in Montana. Oh, is he? Okay, everybody's going to Bozeman. Um, uh, we have several mutual friends who have recently moved to Bozeman, Montana. It's a great place. A little cold for my taste. Um, but uh, yeah, so we are, uh, we're record. I should mention, uh, we're recording this uh, at night. Uh, so I might, I, uh, it's technically past my bedtime. I might get a little punchy. Um, we need some like, uh, what what was the what was the uh the the old like MTV After Dark or do you guys maybe you maybe yeah yeah, yeah no I I used to watch Headbangers Ball uh huh yeah 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 Gen uh, X represent right exactly yeah uh well yeah maybe we could talk about generational stuff uh anyway but um just uh so obviously you don't have to say your name but if uh, maybe it would be good if you were to give some just background about yourself and who you are and, and what you do at whatever level of specificity you, you want to do. Sure. Um, so I am a writer professionally. Um, I tweet way too much. Uh, <laughs> I have like very, very minor uh, Twitter celebrity. Um, I, you, you either know me as a Twitter personality who is much more popular as girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, as it were, or you follow one of my two newsletters. Uh, one is called Latter Day Inked, and it's about Mormon cultural products, and the other one is called Default Wisdom, and it's an advice column. Um, I also ran an experiment where I would basically like meet up with anyone from Twitter, like so long as they weren't overtly threatening, um, trying to be like a default friend, so like a person you would call if no one else would pick up, pretty much. Um, quickly ended that but that was a that was a cool pre-corona experiment yes uh in fact i think that's how we met in person as well one of those meetups a while back i just i i remember there was uh there was some guy there who was um muslim like the head of muslims oh right muslims for trump yeah ryan yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he uh interesting fellow very strange dude um, I sent him 40 postcards, and each postcard had a little bit of a Christmas carol on it. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, the the first of the newsletters that you mentioned uh, was about uh, Mormon products. Uh, I mean, do you have a LDS background, or is that just... Uh, <laughs> no, like I, I, hey, can, can, I, can, I, can I just jump in? You're not supposed to use the M word anymore they don't go by that just put that out there don't want to get uh, that actually, mad at you yeah i will well i will say is that while uh lds is the preferred nomenclature mormons are so nice that they don't actually get mad if you call them mormons um in my experience anyway it's not it's not a slur it's not defined as a slur in the webster's not yet i don't think it's a slur i mean i was just in utah and i bought a copy of Mormon lingo bingo, which was, you know, from a Mormon bookstore. Uh, I think, I think it's cool if you, they might prefer uh, saint or Latter-day Saint, but 
uh, I think you could still still say Mormon. Yeah, I think I think so too. Uh, uh, but you know, if if there are if there are some angry uh, LDS people out there who want to write negative reviews uh, for the podcast, go for it. <laughs> you have you have my permission. Um, so I, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Razib cut you off there. Like, um, do you like do you have an LDS background or how how did like how, how did you get into that specifically? Um, so I don't, I don't have a LDS background. Um, I'm actually, my background's like either best described as like Jewish or like not really religious at all. Um, I've been really interested in, um, the church since I was a kid, really, um, a big fan of Donnie and Marie and it sort of pivoted from there to a more, a more general interest. Um, and every now and then I would like tweet about it and people were like, this is so weird. Like, what is this all about? So I started writing about how I, I there's some parts of the scripture that are interesting to me, but it's really like the culture surrounding Mormons and like the history that's that's more interesting. So uh, yeah, I, I send a, a little a little story about my my interest in Mormon movies and TV shows, and you know every now and then the Book of Mormon uh, every week. Okay, yeah, the um, the. Mormon or LDS culture, uh, it seems like it's very uh, 1950s uh, in its own way, um, which, you know, appeals. There's definitely aspects of that that to appeal to me, um, particularly compared to some, some elements of 2020 culture. Um, but Let's that, get into that. What are the elements of 2020 culture that you wish uh, we weren't? experiencing you know besides the obvious right <laughs> uh, well yeah right Co well so and this is actually something that i want to talk about because you had because uh one of your newsletters is uh, like advice or whatever and um i guess i would say um not to be pejorative about it but like it, people just seem kind of crazy right in in all senses of the term right like uh l lots of people are not well <laughs> and uh, i don't know what it is that is making people like that it does seem like it's uh it's it's gotten gotten worse um and i think a lot of people would would tell you that they're not they're not well um uh i don't know what uh, Razib, what do you think yeah, I mean, my basic attitude is, so uh, a lot of it has to do with kind of valorization of being marginal and unwell. And even if, you know, oh, you have a mental health condition, it's almost like the victim mentality, people glory in it. And I think that causes some serious issues where, you know, someone who's actually quite privileged will try to figure out a way they're not privileged. And that's kind of a race to a weird bottom and i think that's what really bothers me it's like kind of like um i don't know like if like, to give a concrete example the term conventionally attractive i use it too but what does that really mean i mean yeah there's some variation and some people you know are not conventionally attractive but like that we use that term almost makes it like as if there's not agreed upon general standards, which like, let's be frank, uh, you can look at the OKCupid okay social science data and there's some pretty consistent patterns that you see in there, but we're kind of not acknowledging it anymore. Like everything is officially on and I, I just don't think that's true. I, I mean, I think you're partially right, but I like, so criticism of the term conventionally attractive is something I've been seeing a lot lately. But I, I mean, it, to me, it like definitely means something, right? Like there's some people who are like, they're, because att attractive doesn't mean beautiful. I, you know, I, I feel like there's, there's good looking people who aren't sexy. Um, but, you know, conventionally attractive is they have a, a symmetrical face. They're probably very well put together. They're clean. They're angular. You know, they have all these things that we come to think of as hot. And then there's people who are like, kind of hot in their own way even though there's maybe something sort of gross about them or they're at the margins somehow um so i mean I, I think that's definitely a useful distinction i'm trying to think of like kate moss right 
Kate Moss is is attractive no matter how you slice it. She's not conventionally attractive. She's kind of like fucked up looking if you take her out of her context. But in her context, she's, you know, at some point she was a very sexy person. I I think with Kate Moss, that's a very attractive model who has a drug addiction problem. (laughs) But also she has fucked up teeth. She has like these buggy eyes that are super far apart. Like if Kate Moss didn't have the whole Kate Moss aura, she probably wouldn't have the cachet that she ha- that she has. That's possible. I actually, uh, for a minute there, I'm so out of it that I had Kate Moss confused with Kate Bush, and I was like, "Oh, I, you know, I don't. I guess I can kind of see what you're saying." But, uh, Kate, Kate, Kate Upton. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's the 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 model from like the 1990s. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of them. A lot, lot of Kates, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I was in law school, in my in my law school class, there were, I think, uh, 11 Catherines or Kates or Katie's uh, of one form or another. Different spellings, um, but it's a it, it is or was a popular name. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously that's obviously a, a big thing uh, that it seems pretty negative to me. I think that even people who suffer from uh anxiety or depression or loneliness or whatever like they don't they don't want to be that way right they uh it, it would be better if they don't have those problems so if there's something if there's something about modern life that seems to be really increasing that and uh it does seem to be the case that this has kind of exploded recently uh that doesn't seem very good. Um, uh, everybody hates each other <laughs> and is just like mad and yelling at, at each other uh, all the time. That maybe that's related. Maybe that's not related. I don't know, but that's a thing that I don't necessarily like about uh, the modern world. Um, I could go on. There, there's other things um, as well. Uh, Mick. Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is conventionally attractive, you would say. He's got a strong jawline. Yeah, Mitt Romney's a very attractive guy. But then he has that weird, like, body language issue. Like, he's very cold, so I feel like that turns a lot of people off. Mm -hmm. Doesn't he have kind of, like, dorky body language? Like, he's, like, a good-looking guy with a dork affect? Yeah, I mean, I feel like um, this is something that I'm writing about, actually. There's, like, a sort of way that like Mormon men carry themselves. And I feel like, uh, you know, obviously this doesn't apply to everyone. There's millions of, of Latter-day Saints in the world, but Mitt Romney sort of exemplifies a stereotypical Mormon guy. Yeah. He, uh, it, it's kind, he kind of reminds me of like a talk show host or like, like a game show host, I should say. Um, so he has, it's kind of a authoritative presence, but it's also kind of wooden um uh in a way that there's something where it almost like i don't it comes out it comes across almost as being kind of a put on even if it's not um uh, i don't i don't know entirely he's he's not you know it's he's got like you know man in gray flannel suit affect from the 1950s i think so um just just some context i grew up with uh a lot of Mormons in Oregon. So um, I think it's totally true that they are kind of a throwback to the 50s and 60s culture. They were when I was growing up. Uh, Things have changed a lot, partly because there's been huge defections, but that's a separate topic. Um, But they do kind of valorize that like bourgeois 1950s norm. Um, And I think that's why they seem out of place in America today, because, you know, that's kind of kind of put that behind us. Yeah. So how did you, so you have one of your two newsletters is, it's kind of an advice uh, newsletter. People write in with questions and you try and answer them. Um, so how do you, like, how do you get into doing that? How did that start? Uh, well, speaking of Mormons, <clears throat> I had a an ex-Mormon friend who, um, you know, was always telling me how he's like, he really wants to start writing. And he's always giving his friends advice. And he also gave me like a a ton of like really good advice. And, you know, default wisdom used to be 
event listings. And when Corona started, I couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore. So I was like, uh-huh. all right, um, why don't we try like turning this into an advice column? And then if you like it, we could keep doing it. And if you, if you don't like it, then, you know, I'll, I'll either take it up on my own or ax it or, or whatever. Um, and so he actually was in the first two or three issues of it. And then he got super busy. So I just, t- I, <laughs> I didn't even want to bother him. I just like took him off the newsletter <laughs> completely and took it over myself. So it was a coup. Yeah, I just kicked him off. I was like, look, dude, you're, you know, you're working in your company. I'm just going <laughs> to take, take this over. Lousy advice anyway, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, so um, I, I do find this interesting because personally, over, over the years, I have developed a fairly strict no advice policy um, where I try to not give people advice, uh, unless they either really, really explicitly ask me for it, or they're about to get hit by a bus, right? I think if someone's about to get hit by a bus, I'll give them some advice that they should step out of the way. But, uh, I just, uh, in my, in my experience, uh, a, uh, a lot of times when I have tried to give people advice, they don't they don't like it um, or they don't listen to me. And uh, occasionally my advice is just not very good. So I don't know. What what is your philosophy on this? How do you, uh, what, you know, what, what gives you, to, you, you the right to tell other people what to do? I mean, nothing gives me the right. Um, I, <laughs> what I try to do is offer people tools more than, you know, giving them actions to do. Um, so if you, if you look through like most, um, you know, most of the newsletters, it's, it's me giving people like maybe questions they haven't asked themselves about their situations already. Um, so like to give an example of this, like one of the early issues, uh, was someone asking if they, you know, like how, how can I cultivate more patience? And, you know, I, I countered with, well, what situations make you impatient? And maybe that lack of patience is you actually just setting a boundary and maybe you don't need more patience. You need, you know, to reframe how you're looking at your situation. So I, I try to, I guess it's sort of like uh, maybe like a, a, a truncated version of uh, CBT. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just giving people questions mm-hmm. to ask themselves and hoping for the best. Um, and then, I mean, sometimes it also gives, gives me an opportunity to comment on things that are, you know, happening in our culture. Um, like I, someone asked me if they should start an OnlyFans and I sort of, I, you know, I, hopefully I gave them good advice, but I also used it as an opportunity to share what I felt about OnlyFans. Mm. You might want to, you don't need to get in detail, but some listeners may not know what that is. Uh, yeah, sure. So OnlyFans is sort of like Patreon. You, It's a subscription service. Um, most people, when they say like, can I start, or should I start an OnlyFans? They mean, should I sort of start a pornographic OnlyFans? Um, you can use it for anything you want, but people usually use it to sell, you know, to, they're, they're basically cam girls on a subscription, subscription service. I mean, some people probably subscribe for the articles. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's OnlyFans is its own trend but um there's also uh you may not be aware of this there's also only racists uh which uh Razib can tell you about hey i mean a hundred dollars for 30 minutes is not that bad yeah why don't you explain that <laughs> so, uh, basically what happened is um i advertised my services that i would uh yell racist at a white male for 30 minutes for a hundred dollars a session and someone took me up on that um, they sent me $100 via Venmo, um, and I did that for about 20 minutes, and then we had a conversation at the end, you know, just kind of some after-screaming, um, <laughs> you know, discussion about white supremacy and being, you know, a privileged white male of Canadian background who lives in Austin. So um, it was an interesting experience. Um, I haven't done it as a follow-up, but, you know, maybe I will, you know. Um, I was hoarse for a couple of days. I feel like so many people would 
pay you for that. Like I, there must be a huge market for that. Well, I mean, I have brown skin and I have a loud voice. So, um, yeah, I think I can do that. Um, the only thing is like my kids like stick their head in the room and look at me really strangely. So I don't know if I want to deal with that. Yeah, I think actually, I think your, uh, your biggest disadvantage, um, is that you're otherwise known as a, a conservative personality or person right i could i could i could use and maybe i could use an alias right you just like by calling them by calling them racist i'm sure i'm actually sure you there's there has to be a market for like you know online doms who just call people racist because there's such i I mean maybe i don't want to get into this but i feel like with the you know the climate there has to be people who've like developed fetishes for this now uh, yeah, I, I mean, probably, I'm sure there probably is. Yeah. But the thing about, uh, like, I would imagine, well, actually, I have no idea. But it does seem like uh, if someone, if it, you want someone uh, to scream uh, racist at you, or call you a racist or whatever, um, like, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit if, if, as well, if you think that the person on the other end that's screaming at you is doing it as a, as a kind of a joke. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's kind of like um, the dream or the um, illusion, the illusion of authenticity is gone. That's what you're saying. Right. (laughs) Ice cube, right? Like he could do it, you know, Uh, Nicole, Hannah Jones could do it. Right. Uh, Ibram Kendi wouldn't even have to say anything. He could just stare. (laughs) Right, right. Um, uh, you know, someone like that, perhaps. I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, okay, well, at least um, on the plus side, uh, I think I managed to divert uh, the conversation from talking about OnlyFans too much um, uh, by talking about... But, it like, this is, I think, another kind of, like, weird thing about modern societies that... Um, there's all these, not only is there direct payment, you know, not only do you have all these uh, people, internet personalities or whatever, who are making, uh, you know, money off uh, videos or writing or whatnot, but the, there's a, there's a level of, uh, personalized service, right. Um, where, uh, a lot of people, I guess that's, it's a little bit of the only fans, but even with some of the, like. I know there are people who, um, and even, even like, uh, you know, there's nothing tawdry about it, but if you go to some of the different, um, like Patreon accounts, they have different membership levels, you get up to the higher membership levels and it involves, you know, uh, having like one-on-one conversations with people or I, there's, one guy i uh i am actually uh, a patron he he has like a thomas aquinas podcast right and at some absurd level of funding he'll like fly out to where you are and have lunch with you or something you know um and like that's kind of a that's kind of a weird thing because it seems like the the trend um over the course of hundreds of years has been, uh, you know, trying to do things at scale where the way that you make money is that you do a, you know, you, instead of doing individual performances of your song, you do a recording and it plays for hundreds or thousands or millions of people. Right. And this seems kind of like a reversion in a way. I mean, I think, I think people struggle. So, I mean, this is going to sound sort of like trite, but people struggle so much to to form relationships that there's a real market to just to just buy relationships. There's, I, you know, there's everything seems like a parasocial relationship. You listen to podcasts, you think these people are your friends. Um, you know, you follow someone on Twitter long enough, you think you know them. It was very much the same with Tumblr and and Live Journal. Um, so, you know these 
selling these like one-on-one chats or, you know, going, flying out to have lunch with someone is the VIP concert. And the scale is, you know, your blog, your tweet, your tweets, um, your podcast, however you're delivering your message. Uh, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that. Um, it uh, and I wonder, uh, you know, you I think you, you mentioned about like people are people are hungry for you know connections, right? Is there is there something about like what is it that is kind of uh, not allowing that to happen organically, right? Like it would in the past or is it, I mean, have people just always been lonely or, or, and disconnected? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I do think we sort of have cultural amnesia, um, you know, and, and sort of, I think communities used to be stronger. Um, I'm a little bit older than people think I am. Uh, I don't know how this like, uh, mythology around me started, but you know, like I have like pretty firm memories of like pre-internet life. Um, you know, and I, I was very much alive and like navigating that world. It was it, on the one hand, again, like communities were firmer, but people were still lonely. So I think it's kind of both like people have always been alone and have always been isolated. And then the things that you could have thrown yourself into in real life to sort of allow yourself to forget have now eroded. So you have no avenue. You know, it, it's it's interesting, like, uh, and I swear I, I won't monopolize a conversation on this topic but like it's not that incels are new it's that we have a name for it it's not you know it's these things have always existed they've just become they've just scaled we have labels for them that we didn't have before we have new ways for these people to express themselves uh you know new ways to investigate our own loneliness so i think that's that's pretty underappreciated yeah it, it, it. Incel being uh, involuntarily celibate, right? Uh, right. So, have you? Did you see? Um, so there is a documentary that came out a few months ago. I think it's on Amazon. Uh, TFW No GF. I think I got it right. That feel when no girlfriend. Have you heard? Yeah. About- I did. I was excited that they put uh, South by on Amazon as part of the South by streaming thing. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I I don't love a lot of documentaries about the internet. I uh, I think that the the folks they profiled uh, were good choices. I don't know if I loved the execution, but I think it's a pretty hard story to tell. So, you know, I don't think it's really the fault of the filmmaker. I think it's I'm sorry for some feedback. There's some folks walking outside my window. Um, I think it's just, it's a hard story to tell and that that difficulty was reflected in the film, I think. Yeah, one thing um, I would jump in and say is I think today everything is an identity, whereas in the past um, it might not be. And so it's not salient. It's not a cultural touchstone. But now every unique life situation can be turned into an identity and then there's a competition for which identity is more important or higher status or worthy of more attention and so um i think that's what's going on today as opposed to the past yeah i think that i agree with that i think that we're in this weird moment where people don't really have a lot materially uh you know they don't have a lot of cash they don't have uh, you know, they, for, you know, most people outside of our bubbles, like buying a house is completely out of the question, but what you will always have is your identity. So you could chop it up in whatever way you want and sell it. I mean, like cultural appropriation can't exist in a society without intellectual property, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Cause I, so I was definitely uh, what uh, I think uh, would technically be referred to as a loser in school, uh, although not quite so much uh, by the end, but I was definitely a pretty nerdy kid um, and had some of the typical problems there, Um, but 
does seem like, I, I don't know, maybe it did seem like there's kind of a different dynamic to it. Um, maybe partly because uh, it seems to continue on long after people are out of school. And school is, in fact, I would say one of the things that seems to have happened to our culture is that a lot more of our culture now reminds me of high school or even junior high, really. Middle school, middle, middle school. school. Yeah. Uh, like everything feels a lot more like middle school than it did uh, 10 years ago, say, right? Um, I, I don't know. Did it, uh, do you, did, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no privacy, like anything you've ever said can and will be used against you. It's, and it's exactly like middle school. There's no, about it. you can't grow, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I do like, I don't know. I, so I have, I have, uh, kids and, um, right now, they're still too young to, for any of this to, to matter to them. Right. So like all my kids care about is like dragons and, and you know, uh, uh, whether they have to clean up their room or whatnot. Um, but I do like, it seems like, uh, I don't know. It seems like kind of a harrowing thing uh, uh, for them to have to, to go to uh, or go through. Um, and then, you know, maybe we just like, uh, yeah, not necessarily a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I will say that um, I have a friend who has a teen and I did not know this at the time, probably because I'm naive uh, and I don't know too many teens. Uh, Instagram is the um, it is the platform of choice for high school bullying, apparently. Um, so, you know. I can I, I could imagine how that would happen after I was told about it, but I actually had not thought about it. Right, people with like reactions or or yeah, I mean, people apparently like they take photos and then they will tag people and write comments about the photos. Ah, gotcha. And the whole school will, you know, do hearts or whatever on Instagram of some awkward photo where your you know enemy is making fun of you. Stuff yeah. like that happened back in our day, but <laughs> it was much more crafty, craft, like small scale. This has been like industrialized where like literally the whole school is mocking you. Yeah. Is that, is that more of like a girl's thing or because uh, for me, like uh, my recollection, like physical violence played a, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it was hardly uh, all of the, tormenting um in schools or whatever but like that was definitely a big part of it is just like you know uh someone might like push you or punch you or or choke you or you know in addition to like kick you in the face yeah right right i don't uh, did i ever get kicked in the, i don't think i ever got kicked in the face per se but um uh you know there's de there's definitely a, an and even if that didn't exactly happen there's always an element of that right uh, you know, gendered like in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, I don't think, I don't think that's ever, I don't think that's quite how it was for, uh, for girls. I don't know. Never having been a girl, it's, uh, it's a little hard to say. I mean, I was a girl. I mean, I'm still, I still, am. <laughs> I was a girl. Now I'm a woman. Um, uh -huh. I, I was bullied pretty badly. I was cyber bullied, verbally bullied in school and also physically bullied. So, yeah. but when I was being cyber bullied, it was like people on AIM sending me like tub girl, you know, whatever the hell else was like the goatsy, <laughs> which I guess like, don't, don't Google this people. <laughs> what does that mean? Is that like, uh, don't Google it. Okay. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I won't ask. <laughs> you know, they were sending uh, me like a, like shock material right like remember yeah. in the you know at some point online there was everyone liked these like shocking images it was before two girls one cup <laughs> you know what's gonna rile folks again up? do not google that don't google <laughs> it 
Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I guess there's uh, sometimes ignorance is bliss, but uh, the thing about and perhaps it's just because so much of social life is on these online platforms now. Um, but there, there's definitely an element of like, as I, you know, one of the things about middle school is that in a way, like everything was kind of very insubstantial. Um, it, you know, uh, like what, what's the difference between wearing like, like if you, if you wore like, uh, the wrong, uh, shoes, right. Or the wrong style of clothes, uh, then, you know, people would make fun of you. You weren't cool or whatever. Uh, but if you, what was cool one day could become lame the next, right. It was this kind of ever changing flux. Um, and so everything was kind of like rule by arbitrary fashion and uh, this weird like popularity contest, right? Um, and I, I feel like there's a similar dynamic going on now, uh, although it's uh, ostensibly about, like it's not about clothes exactly, but it's about like ideas or uh, verbiage, well right? Yeah. I think it's like goes back to that thing like people just have less resources like you know when I was in middle school it wasn't arbitrary what you know what shoes or what t-shirt or whatever was a popular thing to have it was how can you effectively signal that you're rich and it of course it's like rich according to a 12 year old but right. now it's that's out of vogue so it's like how can you it you want to signal something else it's a lot easier to pretend you're rich than it is to pretend you're, you know, a, a marginalized person. Or, right. I, I mean, I, the other big difference, I guess, is like it was also very. It, you wanted to signal you were a wasp when I was in middle school, like that was those were the people you wanted to be. Of course, now that you the polar opposite, you do not want to be a wasp. That's right. so someone out of a volleyball ad or something. Yeah, you know, just like, oh, are you part of such and such a beach club, country club, yacht club? Uh, I remember like someone telling me like, oh, like you don't have Chanel ballet flats. I'm like, I'm 11. You know, like, of course not. Still <laughs> $1,100 shoes. Uh, well, yeah. So uh, there, there. Uh, I definitely didn't have to deal with the the Chanel ballet flats or whatever. Um, although it, in my middle school, uh, pretty much everybody was rich. So I don't know, it, maybe that dynamic wasn't there. Um, or maybe I was just too oblivious to it. Um, fair to say. Razib, what else do you not like about the world? So much, <laughs> so much. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I, that I have been observing recently, and maybe it's because I'm much more negative than it was a couple of years ago um, is the way language is changing. I'm ticked off by a lot of idioms and um, phrases, and I feel like it's really, really accelerated over the last three or four years. And I don't know if it's because language is changing faster or I'm just crossed a threshold. I mean, I don't know what you guys think about that. Uh, yeah, I don't. So I don't actually know if, language is changing faster i think it's just as you get a little older you get to see the whole cycle um repeat itself um it's like it's it's a little bit like uh going through an economic recession right um when you go through the first one you don't really know what's happening and everything is kind of new and scary and yeah when you go do like the fourth one, you're like, okay, I, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of, you know, it's, it's still not pleasant, but um, you can kind of sense the, I see where the trend is going here. Um, so uh, I don't know, although like, obviously there's differences every time. Um, I agree with that. Like I tend to think that Gen Z and millennials are kind of the same. It's just like different, you know, it's the the way these generations function 
um, are the same with like different details. Um, so with language, it doesn't seem any different than like the slang and uh, new syntaxes that millennials brought into the forefront. So speaking of San Francisco or the Bay Area, um, which, so first of all, were you affected at all by the fires? Were you, did you get to see the creepy orange sky? Yeah, I, I didn't get to see it in as pronounced a way because I'm in the South Bay. But um, yeah, the air quality was pretty bad. Uh, we, we drove to Utah to get some fresh air. And then we came back and new fires in Napa started. So <laughs> we just accepted yeah. it. Yeah. It, it does have a kind of vaguely... Uh, so I, I had already, already, having been in pre-COVID times to San Francisco off and on, it, in my opinion, had de- definitely started to take on a kind of vaguely Blade Runner-ish aspect. Um, and, but of course, orange sky and, you know, uh, have people staying inside because of the smoke and then the power going out periodically or whatever uh, maybe takes it to another another level. Um I don't know what uh what drew you to the the like I don't want to say uh like why would anyone move to the bay area uh, there's obviously reasons for that but, um how, how do you like what is your perspective on the bay area is it like do you like it uh, <laughs> um i i definitely like it more um than some of the people i i you know i hang out with um i I, yeah, you know, I, I like it here. Um, I like the, this is going to sound terrible. I kind of like the way tech has influenced it. Um, there's a part of me that sort of has like a romanticized view of a San Francisco that probably never existed. Uh, I, I moved here because, well, for a few reasons. First of all, I have a lot of family here. Um, and I got, I got divorced in 2019 and I'd been living in Austin and I was working for a startup and I felt like my time at that startup was pretty limited. So I, you know, I went from being in a dual income household to just myself. So I got super lucky and and got a a job that paid pretty well in the Bay. So that's, so between having family and some friends here, kind of romanticizing it. And most importantly of all, ironically, being able to pay my bills by myself. (laughs) That's what brought me to California. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that there's very many people who could say that, um, uh, what so you mentioned you like the influence of tech on the city like how do you think like how does tech influence the city make it different uh, distinctive yeah i mean i think there's a lot to complain about about like tech people but i think what they're they're good at at you know being sort of relentlessly optimistic um and the people who are interested in tech because they're interested in building are usually very curious, uh, you know, they, they're convinced that they're going to have a huge impact on the world, even if they're obviously not. But even that, that sort of that delusion that they're doing something great is actually kind of nice to be around, especially if you're used to, you know, there's a lot of mediocrity in Austin, which it's, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses to that. And then on the East Coast, you have this thing where it's almost in vogue to like, self-deprecate and beat yourself up and that's the way people think at least in my experience especially in the arts so you know the west coast is just like it i really suck up all the optimistic energy even if it is you know mostly delusional yeah so i i definitely um there are definitely a couple things that i like about tech folks as a as a kind of like generalization or whatever, maybe not true of all of them. Uh, one is it does seem like it, they are the only people almost are almost the only people around today who still believe you can do things or do big things. Right. They're not just about, well, okay, I'm going to get a job and, you know, follow the rules and go through all the motions for 40 years until I can retire or whatever. Um, they want to do things like, you know, I don't know, colonize Mars or 
or, or, uh, you know, uh, transform humanity into like some sort of cyborg. Not always, not, you know, people can have different opinions about the, uh, substance of the idea, but at least they still think it's like possible to change things in the, well, like, even when they're hopeless and they're, like, very pessimistic, they're pessimistic in this very interesting way. Um, I don't I don't know how much Twitter crossover there's of people who are listening to this podcast and maybe, like, follow Razib on Twitter. But um, Sonia Mann, like, posted, and she's a, uh, she used to work in crypto and she's a, she's a writer sort of adjacent in the tech space. She posted this Reddit thread um, that was just, you know, the worst vision of the future possible, but it was impossible not to read because even when people who are knee deep in tech are like, everything sucks, the way things suck is like more than just, you know, we're poor and, you know, we're going to lay down and rot. Like it's, it's like your privacy is going to be like completely taken from you and it's going to be taken from you in this, this, and this ways. And um, we're not going to solve climate change because this is how, you know, where the technology is and these are how specific people are lying to you. And by the way, did you know like this thing about like longevity tech that doesn't actually exist? And like, I don't necessarily agree with those folks, but it's like so much more, like their pessimism even is so much more detailed than the pessimism of like your average East Coaster. Yeah. They also, um, they got COVID right, some of them, which is better than you could say for almost anybody else. (laughs) Or early, they saw it coming early. Um, so that's that's also uh, good. As I sit here in my uh, trapped in my house <laughs> for nine months, what they get they get that average is over, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Tail tail events or fat tails or dominate. Um, very a very twenty twenty lesson, um, and uh, we haven't even. We, we haven't even had the alien invasion yet, so uh, which future generations will think back to 2020 and that's all they will know about it is that we had to fight the aliens. What's the deal with like where we are with alien info? Uh, it's been so long. I, I used to go to like abductee meetups and stuff. I was like super into that scene, especially in Austin, and I like haven't been paying attention to it in this moment where like information is actually being released. Yeah. So that's interesting. And uh, so a couple months ago, I tried to get someone to come on uh, the show to talk about the UFO stuff. And I just, I couldn't, I, I couldn't get anybody who wasn't just, uh, you know, totally loopy. Um, and it is, it is kind of weird because, uh, you know, the, the Navy has released these videos, like it turns, like it turns out, uh, yes, there are UFOs, right? Um, there's a secret government program to try and figure out what they could possibly be. Um, depending on who you talk to, uh, I mean, some, some of the, some of the stories might be BS or whatever, but they're in the New York times talking about how, you know, maybe we've recovered, materials that are not of this world or you know all sorts of stuff that if you had told me uh i mean it sounds like you know it sounds like more something out of the x-files than than something that's real right um and you know people like harry reed who is the senate majority leader saying that there's been like a cover-up about ufos or something right like it's not that you know it's it it's it's uh news of the news of the world stuff except that it's true and no one seems to care right (laughs) that's the other weird thing is that you know i think everybody has just kind of internalized that well there's nothing there's nothing there 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 can't be any there there so uh you know whatever it is um uh they just they just kind of ignore it and admittedly there have been a lot of other things going on but uh and then I, i guess there's also been I guess they like they found life on Venus and maybe water on Mars or life on Mars or water on Venus something like that I don't know. Rajiv, have you followed the Venus the 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 Venus? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that it hasn't had more uptake. Um, I think it's, you know, we're, we're kind of in an age where people are very narcissistic, um, self-absorbed, and they don't really want to look up and kind of, I mean, I think this is goes to the whole tech issue. Like people in tech are kind of of a, a bygone age. Um, they have a vision and a horizon. I think that's further out than our current American culture right now. And um, yeah, I actually have a piece uh, coming out in City Journal soon. Um, watch for it. Uh, it's titled The Twilight Empire. That's the provisional title. And it's about America and how we're just focused on our own kind of squalid issues. And um, it would be amazing if there was life on Venus. But, you know, blink and you'll miss it is is where we're at right now. Right. So um, or something. Yeah, there's an ennui, an ennui and a self-centeredness. And I think it also has to do with earlier what I was talking about, people focusing on um, their kind of negative identity, you know? So um, how are we going to dream if we think we're living a nightmare? It's kind of interesting that people are ignoring UFOs, though, because <clears throat> there's been, like, such an uptick in folks who are, like, LARPing uh, religiosity. Um, you know, I feel like, and beyond sort of my Twitter Twitter spheres, but like even like everyday Americans, um, you know, getting back back to their their Christian roots or whatever. Um, you know, the other side of that is often believing in aliens, believing in conspiracies. Um, certainly, like conspiracies are uh, top of everyone's mind, but that the alien piece is totally missing. It's, I mean, that that was the magic of Infowars when it was on public access. That's the magic exactly. of Coast to Coast AM. Yes, I remember. I used to watch Alex Jones uh, back during middle school <laughs> when he had his old public access show, and uh, it was all the same stuff then. Um, yeah, the, um, I do. The interesting thing about the UFO or aliens aspect of it, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that. Uh, I believe in the little agreement or whatever, but it is interesting that uh, it gets it gets lumped in with a lot of things that people dismiss uh, because it has a spiritual or religious or supernatural aspect, right? Um, even though there's there's nothing supernatural about extraterrestrials, right? You know, I mean, uh, life on other planets. Uh, um, in, in some ways is is probably easier to believe in if you are of a secular background than you are from certain religious yeah groups. but not, Unless, not mormon not mormons right i was about to make the same joke as you <laughs> <laughs> um well no i mean i feel like the alien conversation has been co-opted by new age people so yeah. you know folks think are automatically going to think of, uh, you know, sort of like a Heaven's Gate or like Scientologist kind of alien, um, or even like an Alex Jones kind of alien, which still feels like divorced from like, they either think of like new age people or like more tabloid people, um, or, you know, conspiracy. So any kind of more intellectual or even just like, you know, an a rational person who has questions, that's not what has ever been in the, the mainstream depiction of extraterrestrials. Yeah. And I think it kind of underlines the point that for a lot of people, you, when I think I, so I think a lot of people have a kind of uh, default mode where when they're trying to decide whether something is credible or, or worthy, you know, so something that they can take seriously or whatever. They, they look at the kind of people who tend to believe it. Right. And if it, if the kind of people who tend to believe it are eh, maybe a little weird, unusual, low status folks, then they just, they just kind of dismiss it uh, re regardless of whatever the, the content is. Uh, whereas if the people who are putting it forth, you know, uh, I don't know, like wear suit and ties and have fancy degrees and so on and so forth, then um, they're maybe more inclined, inclined to accept it, even if 
even if the latter case is absurd, <laughs> uh, the former case, you know, maybe is right or uh, often often not right. Um, I certainly know. I mean, I I, I know people who are kind of into this stuff and uh, like they they believe a lot of uh, implausible implausible things too, right? So, uh, um, but I, I don't know. It, it's it's kind of like. Uh, um, convince you know someone who's in the same way that there are people who are conventionally attractive. There are people who are conventionally credible, and that's who people would just defer to. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I agree with that. I think that's right. Yeah, it's, everything's culture and social cognition. Not everything, but way more things than we want to admit. People tell a story of individual rationality, but the reality is a lot of your decisions and choices are made by the cultural context. All right. Well, uh, is there anything else you want to cover? You want to talk about? Um, um, I don't know. What, what about you, Razeev? Uh, I think, I think we hit, hit the major touch points. I mean, I think everyone should follow you on Twitter to get a general sense of the, uh, you know, the river of content that you generate. Uh, it's got to experience <laughs> it to get it. At yeah, I guess that's friend or yep, it's that's exactly right. Default underscore friend. Yeah, and uh, if you go, uh, what's the Substack? If you want to, for the two De different letters, defaultfriend.substack.com and latterdayaint.substack.com. All right, and uh, Razeev, do you have anything you want to you want to promote? Well, I do have a Substack that I will be starting, Razeeb.substack.com. So go there at some point in the future. Don't you already have a newsletter? This is yeah, but I don't use the newsletter, so I'm gonna have a like I'm gonna do a legit newsletter with a private podcast and stuff like that. So um, stay tuned. Actually, let me ask you, uh, I, uh, since you both are either current or in the process of having Substack, this is like the new thing now in the same way that people uh 15 years ago everybody had a blog and then three years ago everybody had a podcast and then everybody had a newsletter and now everybody has a Substack newsletter which is a little bit different so what i mean what's the deal with the the Substack newsletters what's what's the what's the appeal well, so I mean, I'll I'll just say like you know it the the system the content management system rolls a lot of things in together, um, in a very easy way from what I can tell, and it has decent distribution. So um, it's just like a bunch of things cumulatively I think combined that make it appealing. Um, I did try to do my own ghost um, platform, but it's just really kludgy compared to what Substack has, which is relatively turnkey. Uh, so that's why I was looking into it. I definitely think the newsletter is a good idea because I'm very, very suspicious of web platforms and social media platforms today um, because of the level of control. And so that's why newsletters have had a resurgence over the last five years. And a friend of mine actually turned me on to them five years ago, even though I haven't used them too much. He predicted exactly what would happen um, with social media censorship and centralized distribution channels. So I think Substack is useful and important because um, it decentralizes the distribution um, back towards the individual author. Now that could change, but as long as Andrew Sullivan is on Substack, I am confident uh, that they allow for heterodox thought, which is happening less and less on, well, definitely mainstream media, but even on social media, as we know, there has been censorship and control of information flows. And, uh, what about you, DF? I mean, I think I think Razib's right. I think there's also sort of a cultural thing to it. Um, you know, everyone it's everyone's on Substack, so more people join it. Um, I heard someone mention today that like Substack has sort of become a word like Xerox um, or Tupperware, where it's sort of like a a catch-all, and I think that's very true. Uh, it it's um it's sort of a, a meme for a lack of a better word. Uh, but, you know, to its credit, everything Razib has mentioned is also 100% true. It's really great to use, not a lot of formatting, super easy, super easy to sign up, super easy to see uh, how your newsletter is doing. Uh, so it has a lot going for it. All right. Well, I think 
unless we have anything else, uh, we'll probably end it there. Uh, thank you both very for joining us, and uh, thank you for uh, to the listeners for tuning in. And uh, see you soon. Uh, stay safe out there. Thank you.